This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I want to uh, point out that in your worship guide is a little card, and on that card it talks about what is happening tonight in our uh, series that we're doing relating to health and the whole person. And Sheila Abar is going to be presenting on grief and what it, um, that, that's kind of her uh, area in life that she loves to talk about and help others with and through, but particularly how, um, how grief can be part of the uh, uh, caregiver and, and what they go through. Now, in saying that, uh, we're getting on a plane tonight to go see Patty's dad who, and mom. who are, He's in the hospital. He's been there for over a week now, and there's much uncertainty about that. And that is part of um, our world right now. So if, if it's not part of your world now, it, let me tell you, it will be someday. And so I'm uh, looking forward to uh, what Sheila has to share tonight. And then I also want to, last week we talked about the, the way that pain pushes us towards God and beauty pulls us towards God. And so, oh, hey, there it is right there. Now, uh, I don't know who to give credit to on that one, but that was a shot I got on my iPhone last night, which, yeah, it's not real... Uh, as clear as it could be, but if you were up in the middle of the night this week, you know what we're talking about here. Now, Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis and others have talked about how beauty, the beauty that we find around us, is not the end, but that which leads to or points to the ultimate. So the ultimate source of beauty is God himself. And so I just wanted to get that in there uh, this week. I'll leave it up there for a minute. Um, okay, small, a small group experience I had within a year or two after I became a Christian in my mid-twenties. And um, sometimes I think too much. That's, I understand. And so we just need to let, let go. But uh, I was in a small group, and we were doing through this prayer, uh, you know, prayer request time. And this woman who, I think she worked in a beauty salon, she asked for prayer, and she said, I, I want to ask God to change my attitude towards my uh, fellow workers in where she worked. And I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm a young Christian, not sure of what I'm thinking, but there's something about that that just didn't seem right. How can you ask God to change your attitude? I mean, don't you have some responsibility for your attitude? Is that a fair prayer request? 
Are, what are we, lobotomy? Are we just anesthetized on the operating table? God, do something in me when we have a part in that? This is what I was thinking. You may not want to be in a small group with me. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that a few weeks ago we got back from Hawaii and I saw that sign that says, don't think, just pray or whatever. Okay, I see. I get the point. But uh, there's, there is something there. There are churches and um, I want to, I, I try to never say anything bad about other churches. I really do. But I got to speak truth here. Uh, there are churches in the Christian world that, that teach that the way you're going to change is, I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, I had a microwave over here. You're going to get zapped by God and that's how you're going to get changed. That is not part of the Protestant Reformation tradition from which we come, from which most Protestants come. Uh, it's just, it's, uh, now we're, we, we're, we're very good, very okay, with God instantaneously healing someone. And it could include character issues, because we're talking about character here. But it, that's the exception. The norm is process, journey, some of the things we talked about last week, pain and beauty, using those. God doesn't want to create people who are, and get this, don't, don't get this wrong, he wants us to be interdependently working with him. He doesn't want us to be passively, spiritually lazy, dependent in a bad way upon him. No parent would want that for their children, would they? You want your children calling you 5,000 times a day to see what to do next? Wouldn't you rather have them build character and allow them to build that character, go through the process and the pain of building that character? You see a God? I mean, that's the God of the Bible. And yeah, he sometimes comes in and zaps us and, and we can, you know, that's a, that we celebrate that. But mostly, it's process. So he wants us to be, I mean, let me just put a few things out there. He wants you to have more joy in your life. How's your joy meter this morning? He wants you to be more thankful. He wants you to be more generous. Those are, and those are not just like pie-in-the-sky things. Those ought to have real application in your life. Where you can look back and say, you know, I'm a more joyful person today than I was last year, or two years ago, or three years ago. Or, you know, I mean, it's real stuff. That's what we're talking about here. Becoming like Christ. And uh, if we're going to become like Christ, we're going to become like Christ. I mean, we're not going to be, it's not a zapping thing. It's a process as it was for Jesus as he walked through life. Things were not always easy. Well, our outline this morning, I want to get this up here for you. And that sort of spills a little bit of the beans there. But uh, I want to walk you through this. We're going to look at a th- uh, three parts here. Theology of, uh, theology of change, a little review. Self-pity. This is our kind of our test case this morning and how toxic it is to change and then steps to getting rid of of self-pity. Our text will be Philippians 2, which was read for us, but we'll be going a few other places as well. And the reason I chose self-pity when it comes to change is because if you are a a person and we all, anybody who's ever had anything bad happen to them in life is a candidate for self-pity. Should we all just take a minute and cry? (laughs) Have a pity party together. You like, you know, we get the worship leaders up here. We can sing a really sad song, and you know, and all join in. Yeah. Anyway, we've, we are all candidates for self pity, and it, the problem is, and this is something I'll, I'll try to make clear, is that if you suffer from self pity, if you allow it to have traction in your life, 
It can guarantee, absolute, no doubt about it, you will not change. You'll stay there. That'll be your place and your posture and your position. I don't know. Maybe forever. If, if some of the um, things that we, we think about how life works and how, the after, how, how everlasting life, what it means. I mean, we're, anyway, that's, that's another sermon. But um, what we do in this life, how we, how we experience this life, has something to do with how we experience the nef- next life. So it, it has huge implications for us. And then we're going to close with communion. Which, by the way, you know, I'll, get, I'll give you the, the little thing right now, is that you can't, you can't come to this table and uh, really, it, it, the one thing you, you can't come with is self-pity. There's just no place for it. We'll get into that a little bit later. But, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to specifically invite all of us at the end here to get just to have it flushed out. If you have self-pity in you, we're going to get flushed out. And if you don't want to go there, you, you don't have to, but that's the invitation. All right, so let's get a little bit of this uh, theology stuff in here. <clears throat> we have to uh, make a distinction that has been very confusing for many Christians and if, if followers of Christ who have gotten uh, the wrong ideas. And so I'm going to do a little what I hope is clear teaching here. There are two words that are theological terms that are uh, they get confused. One is justification, which is in it's we call it salvation. How are we how are we saved? We are saved by what? You can say faith or grace, and they both work. They're, but but the idea is that we are not saved by works, and this is Ephesians two eight through ten. If you want to look that up. Uh, or many other places. We are, we are saying, we have, here's the point. I'll just put it this, this way. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation. There is no reason that you can, when, when God asks you why he should let you into his heaven, there is no reason that you can give other than because Jesus died for me. That's the only right answer. That's called justification. So you have no effort, no work to contribute. At all. However, if we read this verse, many have found it confusing. And this is why I want to make it clear. Paul says in verse 12 um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. There is no contradiction. So, that's what we just talked about was justification. Now, there's another theological term that talks about what we're about here in this series, and that is that once you're a Christian, once you've allowed Jesus to take your place, to die for you, then you have Christ in you by the Holy Spirit, and you can begin to change and become like him. And this is called sanctification. So you have justification and sanctification. Now the confusion comes in that with justification, how much can you contribute to your being justified or reconciled before God? How much? Zero. But when it comes to sanctification, the process of growing in Christ, if you take that same approach, I'm just a, uh, I'm anesthetized on the operating table, Lord, come zap me, does not work, will not work. And I'm giving you, this is Protestant Reformation truth that most Christians 
and even Catholics and Orthodox and those outside of our uh, bigger tradition, they, they've all, they believe this. This is what I'm saying is not, but there's confusion out there. Here's, let me, let me uh, go to this, uh, where we were last week. This is Dallas Willard's uh, Triangle of Transformation. So you have the Holy Spirit's activity, and then you have life experiences, and you have our, our growth plan. And that, that right-hand corner is our will that enters in, and it's, boy, it doesn't all depend on us. It, that's another error. That's, that's called legalism. It doesn't depend on us, but it does depend on us. We, if we say we're just passive, and, and we think God wants us to be, that, that to be you know, somehow spiritually to be passive and la- spiritually lazy, I mean, come on. We need to get active in here in our, in our pursuit of God. So you'll see these, all these statements in the Bible about make every effort. What's that talking about? Make every effort to work with the Spirit of God. Keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul talks about the character of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm, 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 this is, you know, I've got to be careful how many hills I'm willing to die on. Well, this is a hill for me to die on. This is a big deal. Uh, you will not grow, I can promise you, if you are spiritually passive. So that the, we get stuck in that lower right-hand corner. We don't have a growth plan. Uh, we think God's going to do it all. Now, re- remember two weeks ago, we talked about how Paul in Ephesians 4, 20, 24, he talks about putting off the old, putting on the new and how it's not God who's going to do that for you. You're going to have to take off the old and put on the new. But while you're doing that, be made new. The Holy Spirit will be working in you to make you new in the imagination, in your, the spirit of your mind. So it, this is all, it's working with, it's participating, participating, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Working with God, allowing God's will to work and flow through you and saying yes to God as he does that. It involves your, your will. Uh, let's see. Uh, if I can go back to our, our scripture verse. So when Paul says in verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you've been given a salvation that you did not earn, but you work that out. It's like a sourdough starter that bubbles up or whatever in every area of your life. So it, it's, uh, that's what we're talking about here. And then it says, but God is going to work in you. As you work in the right-hand corner, the Holy Spirit up above, and he's coordinating with the life experiences that you're having, pain, beauty, whatever, and he's going to choreograph. So think of a choreographer. The Holy Spirit is the great choreographer of your spiritual growth whose goal is to make you more like God, more like Christ. Okay? That's... So you can frustrate the Holy Spirit's work in you by saying, well, oh, you know, Lord, I, I'm not, not much and I won't be much and I'm not going to try very hard. That's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of a noodle approach. And uh, it, so we, we're trying to activate that, that lower right-hand corner. That's, and that's why I value Lent so much. It's part of that. It's a gift to us. Now, it may not work for everybody, but that's why I, I value that. Um, and the word work is from the Greek word ergon, which from we, we, we get what? Erg, unit of energy. Energy, the word erg is in energy, energy, erg. It's God working in us and we working out our salvation, 
cooperating, keeping in step with the Spirit. That's, that's theology of transformation. If you don't get that, nothing else is going to happen here. So I want to make that clear. All right. Let's go to the second point, which is about self-pity here. And we'll see how this all works out. Self-pity will... Let's uh, get that up there. Um, if, you, if you allow self-pity to have its way in you, it, what it'll do, let me go back here for a sec, it will incapacitate you in your growth plan. You can't have a growth plan and have self-pity at the same time. It will not work. And I'll try to explain. I think you kind of intuitively know why that is, but we'll, we'll slow this down here in a second. Now, um, let's look at self-pity in the Bible. The word self-pity is not found in the Bible, so I'll come clean on that. It's a word that goes back about 500 years. But the idea of self-pity in the Bible, you, you, as I'm going to give you some stories here, three stories out of the Bible, you'll say, oh, yeah, it's there. I recognize that. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. If we look at that story, and if you look at the crafty serpent and what he does when he speaks with the woman, he gets her inside to doubt God's goodness. But what he specifically does is raise a little voice that we know so well that says, you know, he doesn't want what's best for you. You deserve something better. And he appeals to some, a sense of fairness in her, that, that he, he is not giving you what you really deserve. Does that sound familiar? Has anything changed on planet Earth since Genesis chapter 3? And the woman, of course, gives in to that. She begins to, you can see that this, this little self-pity thing begins to happen in her, which opens up the door. Well, you know, this wouldn't be such a bad, I, I, that makes sense. I think I should eat that fruit. And you find there that uh, the root of, or the symptom of envy and jealousy kicking in. And then the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in the Bible. Uh, Cain, his, his gift, his sacrifice to the Lord is not as acceptable. He's not, his isn't favored the way that his brother Abel's is. And God comes to him before Cain kills his brother. God comes to uh, Cain and says, Cain, you know... You need to, he warns him, you, if you don't change here, you're feeling really sorry for yourself. There's anger and bitterness going on inside you. And what does he say? Be careful because sin is crouching where? At the door. What an image. If you haven't felt sin crouching at the door because of self-pity in your life, um, well, just think about it. It's, it's, and, the, and what you do next will uh, determine much. So anger and bitterness are in there. And then we go to the story of Elijah uh, in 1 Kings 19. Elijah has just, uh, and I, I picked these three for a reason, but Elijah has just done one of the great power maneuvers. Uh, the Spirit of God, he's called down upon the prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Baal are wiped out. And Elijah, I mean, it's just this great, victorious moment. If you read it in the context of the day, um, you know, we should never be happy that anybody's wiped out. But if you read it in the context of the story and all that was there, I mean, you just want to, you know, it's one of those moments in the Bible where you're reading it and you want to get up in your chair and say, yeah, Elijah, go, man. And then you find him like, I don't know, the next page of the Bible, whatever time, a few days, weeks later, he's, he's running away from this wicked queen named Jezebel. Don't ever name your dog or cat or your wife or your kids 
you couldn't name your coupon. Anyway, don't name anybody Jezebel. She is wicked. He's running away from her, and he's in this place, and then listen to what he says. Now remember, he's just had this great victory, and he prays a prayer, which is always good. He's under a broom tree, and it says he prayed that he might die. He says, I've, I've had enough, Lord. You ever had that prayer? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And we sing a, a, a song here, Take My Life, Let It Be. This is not that song. Take my life. I am no better than those who have gone before me. He's depressed. Now, James Farley is uh, somebody who wrote an article that is much quoted when it comes to self-pity. And um, it's in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And the reason I picked these three stories is because he identifies those three categories of symptom as the, 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 the typical symptoms of self-pity. Envy and jealousy, com- comparing and feeling like you're not getting a fair deal. Anger and bitterness, which takes that just a little further. And uh, yeah, the resentment is another word that comes in there. And then depression is, is at maybe at the more extreme even symptoms of uh, self-pity. So you can run those past yourself if you're wondering if you're suffering from self-pity. Um, but to go a little deeper, what, what Farley says in his article, and then uh, John Piper says very well, and John Piper says a lot of things really well. I'll get his quote up here. Is that it's, the taproot of self-pity is what? It's pride. Now, it's a tricky thing to realize um, well, uh, there's a quote that I, I like that, that um, self-pity is, is the cloak of pride turned inside out. So uh, we'll, we'll, look, we'll see that here as we go through it. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. And at the end he says, self-pity is the response of unapplauded pride. Uh, many uh, have said this. Uh, I'm picking, on, Piper says it very well, but, but that the real the taproot of self-pity is pride. Now, what, is, what does the Bible have to say about pride in all its forms? Well, let's, let's, think, of a, let's think of the t-shirt. that. Uh, remember, we're talking about putting off the old uh, clothing and putting on new clothing. And uh, a T-shirt that might say without, you know, I mean, who knows? You see a lot of things on T-shirts that you wouldn't think you'd ever see on a T-shirt these days. And uh, but this is this is, hey, look at me. I'm a success. You wear that T-shirt around. That's what we think of as pride. Look at me. I'm a success. And, uh, you know, which is why. And of course, the Lord, uh, we know that God abhors the arrogant that's just, we, you know, every, everybody, every school kid knows that. And there's something in every human being, I think. I'm a big sports fan, and so I always, I don't, well, I don't wonder any longer, but why is it that if you don't know who you're rooting for, who do you root for? The underdog. You know what my theory on that is? I'm, I'm, I've never heard it said, but I just believe that we're created in God's image. And there's something in human beings that if, if we're not in the category in ourselves of being... You know, the New York Yankees. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or whoever. That 
that you know the biggest and the, the ones with the most money and they have all they seem to all win all the time. We're not in that category. We 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 hate that category because, well, you know, we're we just there's something in us that really loves the underdog. It's for because it's from God. We're creating God's image. God's that way. If you look at the stories in the Bible, He hates the arrogant. Which I feel is always good news for Cubs fans <laughs> this time of year. To hear that one more time. God is on the side of Cubs. You pray for them. Um, but uh, the, the other side of pride, though, is this self-pity. And so you have a T-shirt that is, look at me. So let's turn the, let's turn the T-shirt inside out. Look at me. I'm suffering. Look at me. Look what's happened to me. I'm suffering. That's pride. No, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That is pride. And what it does is it incapacitates you. Now, so the two effects, and I got, this is from uh, many who've said this, but I'm, and I'm boiling it down, but there's two effects that Farley identifies from pride in his article and uh, many others too. But the first is that people who have self, or self-pity pride, people who have self-pity who, who indulge in, you know, isn't that a great word? We indulge in it. And doesn't it feel good? C.S. Lewis has some great things about that, that how, how sweet it tastes, but the aftertaste is not so good. But it does, we, we, we indulge in it. And when we do, people who do it, this is an observation that others have made, is that people who indulge in it don't know they're in it. They really don't. They don't realize, there's, there's the blind spot there. They don't realize that they've been doing it. That's why I'm trying to bring it out here. Get this cloak off and look at what's going on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it will absolutely cut off any possibility of change or transformation in your life. Your, um, your identity becomes that of, of something other than a person that would change. So you think you're... I don't know if I've got this... See what we've got here on a slide coming up next here. Well, so we're, we're down in that, talking about that right corner again, and how um, without some activity there, something in our initiative to move forward, our growth plan to move forward, we're not going to be able to change at all. But here's the, the image that we used last week and the week before, is that what, we, what we've got in terms of inputs over there into our imagination, and our imagination is not that creative center that we tend to think of. It's what we value and appreciate most in life that has traction in our deepest place. That's what we're talking about. And instead of listening to God, what he has to say, we listen to other voices that tell us we are a victim. We've, we've, you know, whether it's the devil or our sinful nature or the world, we are a victim. We deserve better. Have you watched TV lately? How many ads will tell you you deserve better? They appeal to you in this self-pity area. That's what we're doing. So we are, there's no way we're going to grow if our identity is that we are a victim. We're the person on the operating table. Poor me, I'm sick, and I need somebody, I need a doctor to help me, and there's nothing I can do. That's the position of a person with self-pity. You're, you're totally deactivating the right-hand corner of the triangle, which means you will not grow. There's nothing for the Holy Spirit to choreograph if you don't enter in. And the Holy Spirit, if he's not able to do anything, there's not going to be any change in your life unless it's moralistic legalism. Not good. So, to illustrate, uh, from any, anybody here 
who likes the Lord of the Rings. You're going to love this. And if you don't like the Lord of the Rings, just tough it up. By the way, if you didn't notice, the uh, name of this sermon is Get Over It. And uh, I can use that line a few times. That's a great parenting line, by the way. Uh, But you know what? Sometimes your kids will tell you that back right at you. Well, okay, so uh, I don't know if you can see this. This is from the scene, um, I believe it's in the second book, but... Uh, and I'm, I'm going more from the book. I, you know, book is better than movie. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the guy on the left is, uh, anybody know his, his name? Yeah. What's his first name? Grima. I, I like to say Grima just because. But anyway, uh, he's grimy. He is, he is a despicable character who casts a spell over King Theoden. And uh, what, it's interesting that he uses self-pity and depression, those, that particular type of self-pity, to get the king to become deactivated, basically, in terms of his, his will, that, that third area of the triangle. He's not going to have a growth plan for change. He's under a spell of self-pity and depression, thinking that he can't do anything. Isn't that, you know, those of you who know the story. Now, what breaks the spell is instructive for us. So Gandalf... Risen from the dead, Gandalf, one of the three Christ figures in the trilogy. You know who the other two are, Frodo and Aragorn. But Gandalf is a Christ figure. And risen from the dead, Gandalf comes on the scene. And what does he do? The the first thing he does, uh, well, there's lots there he does, but he takes King Theoden where to? The bright sunshine. He's going to get him out of the darkness and into the light. That's very instructive. Out of the darkness, into the light, and then he speaks bold truth to him in that place. And in that bold truth, he basically says, and I'm saying basically because I, you know, it's been a long time since I read the book, but he basically says, you are a king. Now act like a king. (laughs) Your identity is not one who is you know, unable to do anything and a, a, a victim and, and have pity on me. No, you've got, you've got authority. You've got a sword. He gives him a sword. He tells him what he can do. He wakes him up from the dead, really. That's what Christ does. That's what the, Holy, the Holy Spirit does that. Get out of your self-pity. Get away from the voices of worm tongue. And then the story takes off and there's a beautiful story of transformation. Well, in my own, in my own life, I, I have a friend who uh, uh, struggles with this, and he's really um, good. Uh, he, he has so many good qualities, and he's very uh, accomplished at what he does. He's a Christian, and he lives in, he, he works in the Christian world. I'm trying to make this general, not in this, not in this state. But so, uh, friend from a distance. But whenever we we've been together. There's just this little sucking energy thing I get that he is jealous and envious of how he's been treated by other Christian leaders. And it just spoils. How can I be be Christ-like, bring him into the light and speak truth? Now, let's go to the third part of um, of our third part here of our outline. What do we do? Uh, it's normal. I, w- I want to say this because I need to make this distinction. Tonight we're going to be talking about grief, and that's part of life. 
So we're not, we want to be sure to say it's okay. In fact, it's good to grieve. It's good to cry. It's good to go through uh, that process of grieving. And, and honestly, uh, that is, that's not what we're talking about here. But the grief process can be that which becomes the initiating point for self-pity. Okay, so we need to recognize that. In C.S. Lewis's uh, story of the silver chair, there's a little girl named Jill. Um, I read this story again. I just, it's my favorite of the books, the Narnia books, when I was on my sabbatical last year. And in that story, Jill, is, at the beginning, she's had a, a, a bad experience. I won't go into all the details. And uh, her friend, she realizes, you know, she's, she's basically pushed her friend uh, Eustace over this cliff, and she doesn't, she's very hard, sad about it. And then Lewis just says, as she's crying there, she's crying, and Lewis writes there, you know, it's okay to cry for a while, but pretty soon you have to figure out what you're going to do next. Isn't that the truth? It's great wisdom. And that's, so it's okay, it's good to grieve, but at some point we have to get on with life. So the Apostle Paul, um, he wrote uh, these letters that we've, basically our, our texts for this series have all been out of, uh, have all been out of his, what we call the prison letters. And these were uh, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, are the three primary ones, and then uh, Philemon. They were written when he was in prison. So I want you to think about that. Now listen to these words uh, from Paul as he's in prison. Because you would think that somebody in a Roman prison in around 60 AD would have some cause for feeling sorry for himself. As he's writing to people who aren't in prison, who have a lot of things that, that he does not have. And so in verse in our text, he says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, verse 17, on the sacrifice, uh, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice. With me. Mutual rejoicing. He's asking them to enter into his joy. His joy that he's got while he's in prison. What? How does Paul do that? I mean, how, that, boy, isn't there something there that you would like to have, right? I would. Uh, that, that no matter what, I mean, uh, all your retirement goes away. Uh, whatever, all your reputation goes away. And... And uh, your family, nothing. I mean, and you still have a joy and glad you're in prison. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing. Wouldn't you want that? Whatever he's got is pretty rare, it seems, in this world. And what is the secret? Well, he makes that that very clear. It, it's not that hard. It's Christ. It's all about Christ. Now, why why Christ? Well, Paul had this great sense of having deserved something other than what he got. When well, he says he's in prison, I mean, nobody deserves. I mean, Paul's a good guy. He didn't deserve prison. Well, well, let's back up a little bit. He was murdering Christians. Remember his story? And he also just knows that the holy God that Ben was talking about, that there's nothing that justifies us with the holy God. And so Paul had this great sense within himself that he has gotten something in life that's so valuable that he did not deserve. It's that which drives him. That's why he can be in prison and say, I am so full of joy. That's it. Now, Christ is the source of that. Now, Christ is the one, if there was ever, ever a person in this world who had the right to say, oh, I am, 
look at me, I'm suffering. And, and get people to feel sorry. I mean, he's the perfect person who had something really bad happen to him, and yet he doesn't go into self-pity. Go figure. Why? And what is it about that that's so attractive? So attractive, feeding our imaginations, that feed our, our desires, that feed our thoughts, that feed our actions. That's what we're talking about here. The image of Christ on the cross dying for you so that he took what you deserve. And you've got to say to yourself, this is what Paul does, I deserve to be on the cross. If you can say that, most of us don't live there, but that's, the, that's what the Bible is saying. I deserve, when I look at my life, honestly evaluate it the way God evaluates, if he's truth and he's light and what he says is true, then I deserve to be on the cross. Not Jesus. I should be dying for him. Huh. He's dying for me. And he dies not just so that you won't be on the cross, but so that you can get what he deserves, which is eternal friendship and joy and glory with God forever. All this stuff beyond measure. And that's why I like to say that the worst thing that we could ever pray for is for God to be fair. The whole Christian religion is based on the truth that God is not fair. He is good. Can I hear a... Yeah, something, 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 something. And, and if, you don't, if you don't want to believe that, well, go ahead and choose self-pity. But I don't want to come to your party. How's that? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The word Eucharist is, and still is, but from about the first century, it wasn't used that way in the Bible, but right thereafter, it became the word which was associated with this table. Eucharist, in the Greek, Eucharisto means to thank, and we translate Eucharist, thanksgiving. One of the things that Farley says in his article about self-pity is that if there's one thing that a person who suffers with self-pity cannot do, cannot coexist, self-pity cannot coexist with thanksgiving. It's just oil and water doesn't work. You can't be self-pitying and thankful at the same time. Uh, and so uh, what I want to do is lead us in a prayer that will flush out any hints or um, the temptations that we might have or if we're in that place just to get rid of it let's pray together would you stand I want you to be fully uh, engaged as we pray together this prayer let's join our hearts Lord clean us out from the inside I pray that these words Lord that I pray are, are true for all of us we open ourselves up to you as a prayer of confession. Take our active will and say, come make me clean. Let's each do that. Take, take that part of you which is active. Come make me clean. Come make me clean, Lord. We can share that prayer together. Lord, cleanse me of my envy and jealousy, my anger and bitterness, and my woeful thoughts and self loathing. Cleanse me of this pride. God, the pride, the root cause of it all is my prideful self-orientation. My putting myself first. And breathe, Lord, as we take that off, as we take off that which is old and which has no part in the new us, and we put on the new. 
that is in Christ. We pray that we would be made new. As you would, your Holy Spirit would breathe upon us life-giving power that raised Jesus from the dead and continues to raise various parts of our being from the dead. Fill me, Lord, with a thankful heart as I remember with my whole being what you have done for me, what Christ has done for me. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.